Maybe the story of the year has been the race to produce a COVID-19 vaccine. It's been amazing to watch this thing come together, how quickly people have been able to figure this out. It's also been fascinating to hear the language used in the quest for a vaccine. Back in October, the New York Times published an article about this process, the title of which was COVID-19 Vaccines are a chance at salvation. The article also included words like redemption, phrases like saving the world, the vaccines are a chance at salvation. That's pretty interesting, right? In our secular age, this perspective that, that squeezes out any sense of the transcendence, here we are using language like salvation and redemption as we hope and long for these vaccines to arrive. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been a challenge to get into the Christmas spirit this year, if you will. And yet at the same time, in a strange way, Advent almost feels more, more real in a lot of different ways. Advent, of course, is about waiting. It is about anticipating, not just opening presents or whatever on Christmas morning, but it's about waiting and anticipating for the coming of a Savior, the coming of Jesus, celebrating that He has come and that He will come again. And so this Advent for me has been sitting with these dual desires, this desire for a vaccine or some sense of normalcy, but then also this desire for the restoration of all things, right? The return of Jesus, no more tears, no more death. Those two realities making Advent a whole lot more real for me. Now, so far we've moved through the themes of hope and the theme of peace. Our theme this week is joy, which raises some questions for us if we're being honest, right? How do we find joy this Advent? in the middle of these difficult circumstances? How do we find joy in waiting? How do we find joy when we're not feeling it? We're not experiencing feelings of joy. How do we find joy in these sorts of moments? I want you to meet me this morning in Luke chapter one. And as you're finding that, let me just pray for our time in scripture together. Heavenly Father, we are again grateful for the ways that we are able to gather under these circumstances, even in this way. It's not ideal, we don't like being apart. We desire to be together in the same place. And yet here we can still come and center ourselves around your presence, around your table, around your word, around the good news that Jesus has come and will come again. God, we ask now that you would remove any distractions, you'd help us to be present in this moment, that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, Speak to us this morning. Challenge us, encourage us in whatever ways we need to be today. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been working our way backwards through Luke towards the, the moment, right? The birth of Jesus. We started in Luke chapter 3. We looked at John the Baptist. Last week we were in Luke chapter two with these great characters, Simeon and Anna. And now today we turn our attention again to Luke chapter one and to a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who is John the Baptist's mother. 
the story really gets going in verse 5, where we read this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Let's walk through some of the things that we learn about Elizabeth throughout Luke chapter 1. First, we see that Elizabeth is barren. Now, this is a repeated trope in the story of Scripture. It reminds us, for those of you who are familiar, particularly with the Old Testament part of the story, reminds us of characters like Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Rachel, Elkanah and Hannah, where time after time we see God bringing birth from barrenness, life from death, hope to these hopeless situations. Second, we learn that Elizabeth is righteous. Luke lets us know right out of the gate that Elizabeth and Zechariah are in right relationship with God and with others. And this is important, not in the sense that, oh, look at these, you know, spiritually amazing people. This is important because barrenness was often linked to sin in that culture. What did you do wrong that you're not able to get pregnant? And so I think Luke wants to dispel that myth immediately. Elizabeth is righteous. Elizabeth knew about waiting and about suffering. Even though she was righteousness, barrenness, again, it did come with social stigma, with shame. She, she names this a little bit later on here in chapter 1. These are people, Elizabeth in particular, who knew about hope deferred, about doing all the right things and not feeling like that faithfulness was rewarded, who knew about side glances and, and people sort of muttering under their breath as you walked by. Elizabeth knew suffering. Now, there is a point here in Luke chapter 1 where, where the story shifts. We learn a little bit about Zechariah. This angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him, Hey, your wife Elizabeth is going to get pregnant and you will have a son. And when this promise is realized, Elizabeth immediately credits God. Look at verses 24 and 25. After this, his wife Elizabeth, his being Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. Here she is naming that shame, right? Taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, it's interesting that Elizabeth stayed hidden for five months. This is a very human thing to do, right? The uncertainty about this pregnancy. I'm old. I've never been pregnant before. Is this really going to happen? Not wanting to be too excited in public. Again, a very human response. And yet at the same time, in this period of waiting and uncertainty, she recognizes this is God's work. The Lord has done this for me. Fifth, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Gabriel tells Zechariah their son is going to be filled with the Spirit, but it's Elizabeth in verse 41, and then later Zechariah in 67, who are identified explicitly as being filled with the Spirit. And a little bit of a side note here, it's interesting to read through the first couple chapters of Luke 
with this lens. Just look for all the different ways the Spirit is at work in those first couple of chapters. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, and when she is, it moves her to speak encouragement. Elizabeth speaks some of the most profound words of encouragement found in all of Scripture. In the middle of her story, Luke kind of cuts the, uh, from one camera angle to another, starts focusing on Mary. Mary, of course, who is the mother of Jesus. We're going to spend more time with Mary next week, but she plays an important role in Elizabeth's story. Look at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready, hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Earlier, we're told that they are related. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So here we see Elizabeth turn the attention to Mary. And again, Elizabeth speaks this great blessing over Mary. We have the tendency, I think, sometimes to become very honed in on our own experience, our own part of the story, to think that we are the hero of the story. But what God is doing in our life in a particular moment is certainly about us, but it may also be about some bigger thing that He's doing, right? Some bigger piece of redemption, which then gives us, <clears throat> if we're paying attention, an opportunity to be a hero maker in someone else's life. And we see this pattern at play in Elizabeth and Mary. Now, there's so many things that we can learn from Elizabeth, but we want to hone in on what she teaches us about joy. So first, Elizabeth shows us joy is very much connected to God's activity in the world. Again, Elizabeth says when she becomes pregnant, the Lord has done this for me. This is one of the reasons why Practices are so important, right? We spend a lot of time thinking about spiritual disciplines and practices. And whether those are Sabbath or contemplation, reading scripture, the prayer of examine, these things slow us down, create space to pause so that we can pay attention to what God is doing, how God is speaking, where God is moving. And this is always true, but especially this year, where it's so easy to be discouraged. We need these disciplines, these practices in place so that we can see, have the eyes to see where God is at work. Now, by the way, you can be discouraged and still have joy. Those are not mutually exclusive. But if we don't pause and look for God's activity in our life, joy will be fleeting. It will be harder to name, look, this is what the Lord has done for me. Second, Elizabeth teaches us that joy points towards the future. And this is where pregnancy is a very powerful picture, literally and metaphorically for us. Here's this wonderful thing that is happening, and yet there's this period of waiting, right? Nine months of anticipating this child. 
Advent joy is not about warm, fuzzy feelings that come from Christmas trees and nostalgic music. Advent joy is tied to what God has done through His Son Jesus and what He will do in the future through Jesus. So we are joyful, not because of what's happening in the moment. In fact, sometimes we're joyful despite what's happening in the moment. We are joyful because of the action of God in history and the anticipation of His work in the future. And then the third thing here, Elizabeth teaches us that joy is shared, right? This example of Elizabeth and Mary. And this gives us an important clue to how we can find joy in the moment. So if joy is tied towards what God has done in the past and what He might or what He will do in the future, the question then is, well, what about right now? <laughs> Especially when things don't seem to be going well. Joy is shared. Again, Mary and Elizabeth are related. And I don't know about you, but in my experience, things can get weird in families, right? Especially simultaneous pregnancies and issues around fertility. There can be jealousy. There can be all sorts of weird feelings and things that happen in the context of a family, but that's not what happens here. These women spend time together, serve each other, encourage each other, and they genuinely seem delighted to do this for each other. As they share in the waiting, share in this process, they share in their joy. All of which leads us to, to this. Today is not just an Advent Sunday, it is also our final practice of the year. This year we've looked at now seven different spiritual disciplines or practices. And we're not going to take a deep dive into this one the way that we have the other six, but that does not make this any less important. So our final practice for 2020 is the practice of encouragement. Now to encourage someone literally is to speak courage into them. It's to say, I'm with you. I'll fight with you and for you. You are not alone. Now, for many people, a normal Advent can be tough enough as it is. This time of the year brings up all sorts of, of things, hurts and losses and laments. The experience of a blue Christmas, I think, has become a more universal thing, though, in 2020. As we think about all those who have died this year, as we think about all that's been lost, as we think about the injustices that pervade our country and our world, we think about all the ways in which our lives have been disruptive. And then, you know, here comes church, right? Be happy and, and sing joy to the world and all this sort of thing. It can be hard to, again, have that experience of joy in the moment. Now, I hope you hear this this morning. The invitation today is not to work ourselves up into good feelings or positive vibes or whatever you want to call it. We can't just flip the switch on those things. And this is why the practice of encouragement is so important. We are bombarded with discouragement. You break that word down. Dis means to separate, to be separated from our courage is what discouragement does to us. And sometimes we cannot 
reconnect to our courage on our own. We need a Mary to come along and say, hey, it's okay to go outside and show the world what's going on. I'm with you and I'm here to care for you. We need an Elizabeth to call out our blessing and our faith, to remind us of who we are and who God is and what God is doing in our lives. We need encouragement, someone to speak courage into us. So let me close today with a couple thoughts about encouragement as a practice. First of all, genuine encouragement comes from shared experience. Anne Lamott says the most powerful sermon in the world is two words, me too. This is what Mary and Elizabeth share, right? Both experience shame around their pregnancies. Both became pregnant miraculously. Both are literally birthing the next chapter in God's redemptive plan for His creation. They were able to understand each other in ways that no one else, not even their husbands, could. And so that shared experience leads them to courageous action. Second, genuine encouragement comes from sacrifice. So shared experience, but then also from sacrifice. Mary travels a great distance to be with Elizabeth. She spends several months there. Elizabeth, on her side of things, doesn't hog the spotlight from Mary. It's not always easy to take the time to do this for someone else. Right? It may not be easy to sit down and write a bunch of notes or to make that extra phone call, or to get on to yet another Zoom call, but those things can make all the difference in the world. I have a friend who writes me a handwritten letter two, maybe three times a month, and certainly the words of those letters provide encouragement for me, but also just the effort and the thought that goes into that, to know that there's someone who sits down multiple times a month to write me a letter by hand, mail those off, that's an amazing thing. That is the sacrificial practice of encouragement. And then finally, genuine encouragement comes from the truth, is grounded in reality. Encouragement is not just about platitudes or saying some nice things, you know, a sentimental kind of card perspective. There's a big difference between that and Elizabeth calling Mary blessed three times. Encouragement is the gritty truth that only comes from connection to God and what God is doing. For both Mary and Elizabeth, encouragement comes from the work of the Spirit moving in their life, speaking through them this truth to each other. Genuine encouragement comes from shared experience, comes from sacrifice, and comes from the truth. And so just a very simple question for you today. How can you be an encouragement to someone else? How can you practice encouragement in the coming week, in the coming days between now and Christmas? Is there someone that you need to speak courage into, speak life into? How can that encouragement be genuine from a shared experience, from sacrifice, grounded in truth. May we be people of discovery who speak life, who speak courage into others. 
In John's Gospel, we get one of the longest insights into what's oftentimes called the Last Supper, this, these last moments that Jesus spends with his disciples. And in, in the Gospel of John, there's several long speeches that Jesus makes covering a, a bunch of different topics, but one of them is about the grief that his disciples are about to experience. In a couple of hours, he's going to be put on trial, he's going to be crucified, he will die, and he names the reality that this is going to be a sad moment for them. But he also leaves them with this truth that that grief will at some point be transformed into joy. I want you to hear what he says here. So John 16, beginning in verse 20, Verily, or very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. As we continue to move through Advent this year under crazy and difficult circumstances, I want us to sit with those words for just a moment. As we head into a time of, of taking the elements, of singing a couple closing songs, this promise that you grieve, but at some point that grief will turn to joy. We know this to be true because Jesus does go to the cross, does give his life, does die. And again, his disciples experience profound grief during that time. But three days later, Jesus comes back from the dead, overcomes death. And spends more time with his disciples. And they have this moment of realizing, oh, from this death comes a resurrection. This is what we remember and celebrate each week in this moment called communion. From death comes resurrection. From these hopeless situations comes a hope. Not just some sort of whimsical hope, but a, but a gritty, real hope. Because Jesus has overcome sin and death. As we reflect, as we sing these closing songs, as you think about how you can encourage and speak life into someone in the coming days and weeks, let's pause for a moment and remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. And that because of his resurrection, our grief can be transformed into joy. Well, thanks again for tuning in and joining us today. Let us go out with uh, two statements that Jesus makes in that passage in John chapter 16. So first he says, Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And then a little bit later on in that same speech, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Grace and peace, everyone.